to build up missions in the local church in any any way that we can, uh, whether it's to help them do local outreach or to extend their reach to do send teams somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world. Uh, we help them to increase their giving so where they can support more missionaries. We help them increase their prayer support for missions. Anything to do with missions, that's what we do uh, helping the local church. But we've also branched out a little bit since we started doing that three and a half years ago. Um, we work with all of the missionary associates in the state of Illinois, in the Illinois district, and uh, we help them go through the process of itineration, and we help them to, to overcome the, the little hurdles that are along the way. Uh, we meet with them uh, pretty much monthly, and they come to our home for dinner. We have a time of fellowship and, and uh, sharing, and then we have a time of prayer together, which is phenomenal. We pray for an hour, hour and a half, and, and God just moves. And that's exciting. We also serve on the district uh, missions uh, committee, which meets twice a year, so we're involved in that. Uh, we are uh, missions awareness directors for Illinois, and just last Thursday I was asked to serve as the assistant director for the Go campaign, Go 2020, which you'll hear a lot more about in the coming months because it's something that's coming up for next May, May of 2020. We're trying to reach 100 million people in the United States with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's, in a nutshell, what we're involved in, but we are thrilled to be with you today. Thank you so much. So we are going to go ahead and just get to the word. And the reason I was in delay is because I needed to get my glasses. So that's just part of life. So we are grateful to be here this morning and grateful to be preaching on the book of Ephesians. It is such a fun book, and there is so much uh, in there for us as believers. So we're just going to ask the Lord to anoint our ears to hear this morning, and then we're going to dive right in. So Lord, I just ask that you would come in, that you would anoint our lips. I pray, God, that you would anoint the ears of every hearer and that they would hear the message that they need to hear this morning. God, we're asking you to do what only you can do, speak to each one of us in the ways that we need to hear it. And we just commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of the letters to Ephesians, first of all, I want to ask, how many have ever written a letter? Okay, yeah, okay. How many write letters in the past month? Okay, has, okay, we got one back there, and I, me too, I could put my hand up there. How many, is there anyone in here who has never written a letter? Never, it's okay, you can raise your hand, you don't, because, you know, letter writing is not very popular today, is it? But it used to be, for centuries, actually, the main way that someone could communicate. If you were separated by distance, then the only way sometimes would be to write a letter. When I was serving as a missionary in the country of Madagascar, um, we had to write letters. This was before email. Okay, yeah, yeah, I was alive before email. And uh, for those young people going, what? Um, it was actually just at that point just for the military and big corporations. It hadn't gotten down to the normal folks like us yet. And so I would write a letter to my sister, and it would take at least three weeks to get to her. And then... It would take at least three weeks for me to hear back from her. So a minimum of six weeks for us to have communication together. In our crazy world of instant everything, that's kind of amazing, isn't it, to think about. And we couldn't call because a phone call was $12 a minute from Madagascar. Yeah, I know, for all of us who have everything in 45 minute, $45 or $35 for a, a month, it's like, we, and I might, we used to set the timer, yeah, for keep making sure that you stayed in within that time, even in the States. So, so letter writing has really um, 
It's kind of like a dinosaur. I hope it doesn't go extinct because all of us love getting that personal handwritten letter in the mail. But now with all the Snapchat, all that kind of stuff, it is just kind of declining. But Paul wrote this letter. He wrote this letter to the church of Ephesians or Ephesus. And he was writing it. It was known as what is called a circular letter. And what that means is that it was meant not only to be read just for the church in Ephesus, but then to be circulated among the other house churches. And so they would read it, and then they would pass it on to the church that was meeting in someone else's home and someone else's home. You see, they had, like, basically small groups. And so the church was not a building. We tend to think of the church as a building, but in reality, it wasn't a building. It was the group of believers that met together. And so that's what it was for. He sent this church, this letter to the church in Ephesus, and then they would send it off to other house churches, other bodies of believers, so that they could learn and grow and become more, more mature in, in Christ. So Paul wrote this while he was in Rome. He was in prison, uh, and it was to the believers in the city of Ephesus, which at the time was in Greece. Now it is, it currently it is in Turkey, Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. But it was mainly a Gentile audience, multi-ethnic, and very culturally diverse. Ephesus was a large city. It was a port city, critical to the trade routes of its day. And at that time, Ephesus was the epicenter for worship for the Greek and Roman gods. It was home to the Temple of Artemis, one of the most respected of all the ancient Greek deities. In Acts chapter 19, if you want to learn more kind of the behind the scenes from the letter uh, of the people that he was writing to, Acts chapter 19 tells you an awful lot about it. Uh, it tells us that he spent two years and had two years of effective missionary ministry in that city. And he was speaking in lecture halls, giving those who lived in that province the opportunity to hear the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what all of us are called to do, right? To share with our neighbors, share with our friends, share with those that are around us that life-giving message of Jesus. Paul found some believers there, and th he asked them if they had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they said, what it, basically, what's that? You know, the only baptism they had was being baptized in water. So then he goes on to explain to them what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, and they end up receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. But you've got to read Acts chapter 19 because there is some crazy stuff that went on during that time. I just love this. People were healed. They were set free from evil spirits. Paul walked in such a mighty anointing that even the handkerchiefs and the aprons that he used and that were touched, other people used to put them on the sick people, and they were healed. That's, you'll read about that right in Acts chapter 19. I know, isn't that pretty mind-blowing? That's pretty trippy there. It's kind of cool. And it says that people were healed, they were cured, and evil spirits left them. That's all in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12. But one of my favorite stories in Acts chapter 19 that happened in the city of Ephesus it was during the time period um, where there were seven sons of Sceva, and they were not really walking in the authority of Jesus. They hadn't really grown up. I don't know if they actually were believers or if they weren't believers. It does, the Bible doesn't really tell us, but we know one thing. They weren't walking in the authority of Jesus Christ. And so they came in, and they were trying to deliver a man who was demon-possessed. And so instead of saying, in the name of Jesus, no, they say, in the name of Paul, you were using Paul, who, you know, who serves Jesus, and it says that, that they ended up, it didn't turn out very well for them, 
it says that they ended up running out of the house naked and bleeding. So, so I think we need to make sure that we're walking in that authority and growing up in Jesus. Amen? But we don't have to be afraid. But all of this you can find in Acts chapter 19. It just gives you so much background to the city of Ephesus and to the ministry that Paul had during that time. Ephesians deals with topics at the very core of Christianity. So this is basic Christianity 101. So if you want to learn how to grow, this is a great book to read. Um, did anyone take the challenge of reading it before they came here this morning? I know I threw that out there when we were doing our video. I encourage you, read it. It's just easy. It's only six chapters, and man, it's just so much we can grow from there. So the first half, chapters one through three, it helps us understand what Christ accomplished or completed on the cross and who we are in him and how he reconciled everything to himself, and then that affects who we are in Christ. The second half, chapters four through six, it tells us how we can live victoriously through all that he accomplished by applying it to our lives. Now, if I had an infection on my arm, okay, say I cut my arm and I got a pretty nasty infection, I go to the doctor and he gives me some antibiotic ointment. He says, well, I'm going to apply that to your arm and it'll make it feel better. But what if I don't apply it to my arm? What's going to happen? Nothing, right. It's not going to get better, is it? It's just going to continue to get angry and red and pussy and nasty, and hopefully I wouldn't ignore it so much that my arm fell off. We wouldn't want that. But if I took that anointment and I began to apply it to my arm, I began to use it and put it to that affected area, what would happen? Yeah, it would start getting better. Well, that's how it is with some of these principles. If we don't begin to apply them to our lives, if all they do is sit in that book that collects dust on your table or bookshelf or bedside table, it's not going to help us grow in Christ. But if we begin to apply these principles to our lives, then it will begin to impact our life and it will be reflected in everything we do, which demonstrates through our relationships in the church, our relationships with our family, and our relationships in the world. And so that's what we want to talk about today, Ephesians. Yeah, this is a great opportunity for me because Ephesians is my favorite book in the New Testament, and especially chapter 2. Um, years ago, I was helping with Bible quiz in my home church down in Pekin, and, uh, and the, the pastor and the youth pastor and myself quizzed against our quiz team. They beat us bad, i got to tell you. <laughs> And it wasn't that we didn't know the word. It's we couldn't hit those stupid buzzers fast enough. Boy, those kids were quick. Anyway, but, uh, but I learned a lot studying the book of Ephesians uh, for Bible quiz purposes. Anyway, the, chapter 2 especially is my favorite chapter. But this, these three chapters tell us who we are in Christ. And you know, there's a purpose for knowing who we are in Christ. Three times in chapter 1, there's a statement that gives us the reason why we are who we are in Christ. In verses 5 and 6, it says that he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In verse 12, he says, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And in verses 13 and 14, it says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
who we are in Christ, the reason for who we are in Christ, is to the praise of His glory. Everything that we become in Christ gives praise to God. We are His creation to the praise of His glory. And we're going to look at at who we are in Christ, but realize that everything that we are in Christ is to be designated for us to the praise of His glory. We were created, we were chosen, we were adopted, we were redeemed, we were forgiven, all of that for the praise of His glory. So in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, We are chosen to be holy and blameless in His sight. We are chosen. You know, when I grew up, maybe you've experienced this too, but in gym class, they'd have us choose teams. And you always hoped you were one of the first ones picked, you know. You, never, you didn't want to be the last guy picked because that's kind of a leftover like, well, I guess you're stuck with him, you know. In Christ, we are chosen. He specifically says, I want you, I want you, I want you. And he chooses us. Now, realistically, he, he chooses everyone. But if we don't respond, what he wants doesn't matter. We have to respond. But as we do, we become His chosen ones to be holy and blameless in His sight. Verse 5 says, we are adopted as His children through Jesus Christ. We're His kids. Wow, that's amazing. He is our Father. We are His children. Verse 7 says, we are redeemed through His blood. and We're forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are forgiven. All the sins that we've committed in our past are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 again says, we are chosen in Him. Chapter 2 and verse 5 says, we are alive in Christ. We're alive. That chapter begins by saying, He has quickened you who are dead in trespasses and sins, who walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as others. But God. But God. Oh, those are two fabulous words. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, has quickened us together with Christ. Hallelujah. We are alive in Christ. That word quickened means made alive. We are alive in Christ. Verse 6 says, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come, wow, in the ages to come, we become the trophies of grace. Everyone that's born again is a trophy of God's grace because we are saved by grace. It says in, in verse 8, we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And I appreciate that because it says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that's not of yourself, but it's the gift of God. His grace is a gift to us, not of works, lest any should boast. We can't earn salvation. But verse 10 says, we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. So no, we can't earn salvation. But once we are saved, we become His workmanship, and there are things that He wants each one of us to do in the body of Christ, to serve Him with our whole heart, to serve Him 
and make a difference in our world. We are His workmanship. We're not our own workmanship. It's not our will that we're observing. It's the will of God. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus into good works. Verse 13 of chapter 2 says, We are brought near through the blood of Christ. You who were once far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. We were strangers and foreigners. But now, verse 19 says, we are fellow citizens with God's people, with the saints, and we are members of God's household. We were once alien, alien, aliens and strangers. We were once outside that realm of God's grace. But by the blood of Jesus, we have now been brought near and we have become fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. I believe is how the King James says it. We're part of God's household. We belong to his family. We are fellow citizens. You get into chapter 3, it says we are, in verse 6, we are heirs with Israel. You know, we're just a bunch of Gentiles. A few of you might be of Jewish descent. I don't know, but most of us here, I would imagine, are Gentiles. But we are heirs with Israel, members of one body, sharers together with the promises of Christ. We share in the inheritance of the believer. We share with what the Word of God says awaits those who are His. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. In verse 12 of chapter 3, it says, We are able to approach God with freedom and confidence. He even tells us to come boldly before His throne, where we can find help in time of need. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church is found in, in verses 17 through 19. He says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. You know, all too often, as believers, we don't realize just who we are in Christ. God wants us to know how highly He values His children. How important we are to Him. Not so we'll get all puffed up and everything but so we'll realize our position in Christ. We are no longer of the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We are now part of a different family. We belong to His family. And He he wants us to know how much He was willing to give in order to redeem us and bring us into His family. We are His people. We are the church through whom the eternal plan of God will be fulfilled. You know, God didn't have a plan B. There was one plan, plan A, that the church would reach this world for Jesus. There is no plan B. God has a special plan for the church. He has a special plan for His children, and we are His children. And if we truly realize who we are in Christ, it's a game changer. So let the church be the church and let her rise up and do what she's called to do. It's time for us to stand up for who we are and for what we believe in order to change our world for Jesus Christ. Amen. Then we move on to chapters 4 and 4 through 6. And what does that mean to me? Okay, all that Christ accomplished, what does that mean to me anyway? Paul starts the second half of the letter by challenging each believer to respond to what Christ did on the cross by how they live out their life. 
if we are truly believers, then the gospel message must be applied to our lives, and it will make a change in our lifestyle, in our words, in our actions, in everything we do. Remember the analogy about the applying the ointment? We have to begin to apply these truths to our lives. We need to begin to apply them. Let them kind of resonate. Let them begin to absorb them into my brain, into my spirit of what Christ did and who that makes me because of what he accomplished. Paul wanted the believers to understand that all believers are one body, one spirit, and one Lord. We have one faith, one baptism, and one God. Even though we're all one body, we don't look the same. And I love that fact. And it tells us in this chapter that that God made us each differently. We don't all look the same. We don't taste the same. We don't talk the same. We don't act the same. But yet, God also gave us different roles. In Ephesians 4.11, it talks about the different roles that God gave the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. In this time when you're waiting and praying for the next pastor, begin to pray. That's a gift that God has given us, a pastor, to teach us, to help us grow. It says here, why did he give pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers? It says to prepare God's people for works of service, to build up the church. It says until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's in Ephesians 4.13. He wants us to grow up in our faith and not remain babies. That's why he gave us apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors, gifts to the church to help us grow up, preparing us for our works of service. He tells us to Put off your old self, which is being made corrupted by its deceitful desires. Anybody has deceitful desires? I know this girl does. Boy, I'm constantly fighting those things. To be made new in the attitude of my mind and of our minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. So some of the ways that that's going to look for us, quit telling lies and speak truth. That we would not sin in our anger, but that we would live peacefully. That we would no longer steal, but that we would work and that we would be able to be generous to those that have needs. That we quit being lazy and work, doing something useful with our hands. Giving talk, uh, sorry, quit talking nasty stuff, gossiping, you know, all that yucky stuff that can come out of our mouths and begin to use our mouths for encouraging, for building one another up. Getting rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. And begin to allow the fruit of the Spirit to begin to replace that. Quit seeking revenge and seek forgiveness. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? That would set us free if we began to apply that in our lives. Just as Christ has forgiven us. And don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. How? Well, Paul tells us. He encourages the believer to take off the old and put on the new. When I lived in Madagascar, another example of that is we used to dry our clothes on the clothesline. And so, you know, we'd wear the clothes. And that whole term that I was out there, three to four years, you'd be out there and you'd be wearing these same clothes. And I remember picking out the best to come back to the States, you know, picked out the ones that weren't too worn. And then when I got back here, I realized that even my best over there were really pretty shoddy when I looked at my peers around here. And so I had to get rid of all that old and get some new because it just wasn't appropriate. And that's how we need to be. We need to take off that old stuff and put on the new. 
When I became a Christian, I swore like a sailor. That's how my family is. We just, I just didn't know it was any different. I didn't know it was wrong. I really didn't. That's just what we did in our family. But then I read Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others and according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Yikes. It's like, okay, Holy Spirit, I think I need to work on some of this stuff. So God showed me through his word what I was doing wrong. I was ignorant before, but now that his Holy Spirit had illumined that to my mind and let me know that that wasn't right, I needed to do something about it. I had a choice to make. I could continue in my immature ways, or I could start to grow up. Now, we know that Pastor Chris and Catherine have a baby named Felix, right? Okay, we should have a picture up there. There we go. Oh, I know, isn't he cute? That's right. Good thing he took after Catherine. No, I'm just kidding, Pastor. (laughs) I couldn't resist that. I'm sorry. He really does look like his dad. But babies are so cute, and they're so precious, and they make some kind of strange noises, sometimes inappropriate, don't they? And they fill their prance. Have you ever been around a newborn baby, and you're eating dinner, and all of a sudden you hear that, and everyone stops, and it's like, it's the baby, okay, you know? Okay, so we expect babies to be inappropriate, don't we? We expect them, because they don't know any better. But what if Pastor Chris came in here with a diaper on? (laughs) Would that be appropriate? No, we would think, something's wrong with Pastor Chris. You know, I mean, it's like, well, that's how it is when we refuse to grow up in Christ. You know, some of us have been maybe born again 10 years, and we haven't really seen much change in our life. We haven't really seen the unwholesome talk stop or the gossiping or the lying or we, st- we maybe steal occasionally or maybe we're doing things that really aren't what the Bible teaches us to do as believers. Paul goes on to talk about how we need to grow up in him and when we grow up in him, it, refe- it, re- it, it, sorry, it affects every relationship in the church, in our homes, and in our community. He gives the example of husbands and wives. Wives are to submit to their husbands, just as husbands submit to Christ. Now, I know a lot of wives are starting to twitch out there. Wives, submit to your husbands. Okay, but that's what the Bible teaches us. And when our husbands begin to act like Christ, it's very easy to do. But we need to begin to say, God, how can I submit to my husband? And husbands, how can I love my wife like Christ loves the church? That's pretty amazing. Wives are to respect their husbands, just as a husband is to love his wife, as Christ loved the church. You see, when we begin to allow these things to change us, it changes everything. It changes who we are. It changes our behavior. And it just brings so much more peace in the home, so much more joy in our families when we do that. And children, they're to model the same thing by obeying their parents and honoring them. Slaves to masters. Well, in in our day, it's more like employees to employers. We need to learn to, as scripture tells us in chapter 6, verse 7, serving them wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. My question is, as an employee, are you really serving that employer as unto the Lord? That's something to think about next time we clock in. Women in an age where we're told to look out for number one, women can do anything, whatever we want, We need to remember that the Bible teaches us to submit to our husbands and allow them to be responsible for us. This is a place of of, of vulnerability, but in Christ, it's actually a place of freedom. Boy, I could go on. That's a whole other teaching, but that's, that's that's powerful. And then men, in an age where men have devalued women to a sexual thing to be conquered, 
rather than a fellow member of the body of Christ. We need to be sure we are loving our wives. We are loving our sisters in Christ. We are living that way like Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up for her. Paul finishes by reminding believers that we are in a war. The enemy of our soul is out to do anything he can to stop you from growing up and maturing in your faith. He's out. He's, he's placed dirty. He's doing anything he can to stop you. So how do we fight him? Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, Paul uses a metaphor. Putting on the armor of God, which will enable us to stand firm. The belt of truth, speaking truth, believing truth. The breastplate of righteousness. How are we living? Am I living right living? Our feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace? Am I sharing my faith with other people? Sharing what Jesus did for me? We don't have to be a theologian. All I need to do is tell someone what Jesus did for me. And the shield of faith, standing behind that shield, knowing that God is going to do what he promised. He is going to change me. He is going to save my family. He is going to do what he says in his word. And the helmet of salvation, that's where it all starts, right there. We got to have that where we put Christ in our heart and let him become Lord of our life. And then the sword of the spirit that will reveal truth to us and teach us and help us grow. Again, this is a putting on of the armor. We have to determine to do this. When we do this, we will be able to stand firm in our faith, in our homes, in our lives, and in our world. So we need to begin to put on the armor of Christ. So Paul writes to explain to the believers who they are in Christ. He also writes to help them in their relationships, relationships in families, relationships between spouses, between parents and children, uh, relationships between bosses and employees. Uh, He writes to, to help us understand the importance of preparing for spiritual warfare. The powerful truths that are in this book are only as valuable today as we make them. If we just look at this as history and read it as a historical account and say, oh, well, that's good, it doesn't benefit us at all. But if we use the truth that Paul puts in this letter, see, it was written to the, uh, the, the church in Ephesus, but it was meant for every believer. And so we accept that today as Paul writing to us and telling us, hey, realize who you are in Christ. Realize how important you are to God, how valuable you are to the kingdom of God. Realize your place in Christ, but also realize there's room for growth. There's room for growth in in, in your personal relationship with Christ. There's room for growth in your familial relationships, in your relationships with your co-workers, in your relationships with people in your neighbor. There's room for growth in, in any area of our life if we're willing to learn from his teaching. We'll better understand our relationship to God if we if we'll just learn from his teaching. We'll better understand our relationship to other believers and to those in our own families if we're willing to learn. So I would ask, where are you today? Do you understand who you are in Christ, first of all? Are there relationships that you need to work on in your family or in the church or among the people that you do life with? Have you found your place in the body of Christ? Are you ready for the spiritual battle that's going on in the heavenlies right now, even as we speak? We each have to answer for ourselves, and we all have to answer for the church because we are his people. We are the church, and God has a plan 
for every one of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians, Lord, for the message that Paul has for the believers today. And Father, I pray that this morning every single person here would realize their place in Christ. And Lord, if there's someone within the sound of my voice that is not a believer, I pray that this this message today would speak to their hearts, that they would desire a relationship with Christ, and that today they would yield their life to the beckoning of the Holy Spirit, and they would become a believer. Lord, I pray for this church, that Lord, every believer would find his or her place in the body of Christ. Places of prayer, places of service to truly be your workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which you have before ordained that we walk in them. God, speak to each heart today. Take your message, Lord, and help us to put on the whole armor of God to be able to stand in the battle. God, help us today as we seek to follow you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Chuck and Wilma. The book of Ephesians is actually one of my favorite books in the entire New Testament. One of the reasons is, is I think Chuck and Wilma did a great job of sharing with us today that there is a form and a function to being a Christian, to being a believer. I look around this room and I see sign makers, I see teachers, I see insurance agents. Those are not just titles that we carry. Those are functions of of what we're supposed to do. And a lot of times I think we approach our faith with this idea of, I'm a Christian, I have the title, I'm good. But we need to function in the way that God has titled us. And a lot of times I think we get it backwards where we say, God, I need to get formed first. I need to get all the right stuff in line before I can start to be the person you want me to be. But the book of Ephesians, as Chuck and Wilma shared so brilliantly, flips it around. And Jesus calls us to function as I have called you to be, and you will be formed as you do it. I think that is so pertinent for us as a church today because I think a lot of us maybe might have this attitude of we are waiting for a new lead to form us for who we need to be. But God says, no, you are being. You will be formed as you continue to be.